Chapter 8 Water, said a sharp voice, pricking through the enormous thickness of the bloodshot dark that had come down on him. There followed a sound of floods, then a sense of sudden coolness, and he opened his eyes once more and became aware of unbearable pain in arms and feet. Again the whirling dark, striped with blood color, fell on him like a blanket. Again the sound of waters falling and the sense of coolness, and again he opened his eyes. For a minute or two it was all that he could do to hold himself in consciousness. It appeared to him a necessity to do so. He could see a smoke-stained roof of beams and rafters, and on these he fixed his eyes, thinking that he could hold himself so, as by thin, wiry threads of sight, from falling again into the pit where all was black or blood color. The pain was appalling, but he thought he had gripped it at last, and could hold it so, like a wrestler. As the pain began to resolve itself into throbs and stabs from the continuous strain in which at first it had shown itself, a strain that was like a shrill horn blowing or a blaze of bluish light, he began to see more and to understand a little. There were four or five faces looking down on him. One was the face of a man he had seen somewhere in an inn. It was at Fotheringay. It was my lord Shrewsbury's man. Another was a lean face. A black hat came and went behind it. The lips were drawn in a sort of smile so that he could see the teeth. Then he perceived next that he himself was lying in a kind of shallow trough of wood upon the floor. He could see his bare feet raised a little and tied with cords. Then one by one these sights fitted themselves into one another and made sense. He remembered that he was in Derby jail, not in his own cell, that the lean face was of a man called Topcliffe, that a physician was there as well as the others, that they had been questioning him on various points, and that some of these points he had answered, while others he had not, and must not. Some of them concerned her grace of the Scots. These he had answered. Then again association came back. As thy arms, O Christ, he whispered. Now then, came the sharp voice in his ear, so close and harsh as to distress him, these questions again, were there any other places besides at Padley and Booth's Edge in the parish of Hathersage where you said Mass? O Christ, we're extended on the cross, began the tortured man dreamily. Ah! It was a scream, whispered rather than shrieked, that was torn from him by the sharpness of the agony. His body had lifted from the floor without will of his own, twisting a little, and what seemed as strings of fiery pain had shot upwards from his feet and downwards from his wrists as the roller was suddenly jerked again. He hung there perhaps ten or fifteen seconds, conscious only of blinding pain. Questions, questioners, roof, and faces all gone and drowned again in a whirling tumult of darkness and red streaks. The sweat poured again suddenly from his whole body. Then again he sank relaxed upon the floor, and the pulses beat in his head, and he thought that Marjorie and her mother and his own father were all looking at him. He heard presently the same voice talking. And answer the questions that are put to you. Now then, we will begin the others, if it please you better. In what month was it that you first became privy to the plot against her grace? Wait, whispered the priest. Wait, and I will answer that. He understood that there was a trap here. The question had been framed differently last time, but his mind was all a whirl, and he feared he might answer wrongly if he could not collect himself. He still wondered why so many friends of his were in the room, even Father Campion. He drew a breath again presently and tried to speak, but his voice broke like a shattered trumpet and he could not command it. He must whisper. It was in August, I think. I think it was August two years ago. August? You mean May or April? No, it was August. At least all that I know of the plot was when... when... His thoughts became confused again. It was like strings of wool, he thought, twisted violently together. A strand snapped now and again. He made a violent effort and caught an end as it was slipping away. It was in August, I think, the day that Mr. Babington fled, that he wrote to me and sent me... He paused. 
He became aware that here too lurked a trap if he were to say he had seen Mary. He would surely be asked what he had seen her for, and his priesthood might be so proved against him. He could not remember whether that had been proved, and so, would Father Campion advise him perhaps whether... The voice jarred again and startled him into a flash of coherence. He thought he saw a way out. Well, snapped the voice, sent you, sent you whither? Sent me to Chartley, where I saw her grace, her grace of the Scots, and, as thy arms, O Christ. Now then, now then, so you saw her grace, and what was that for? I saw her grace and, and told her what Mr. Babington had told me. What was that then? That, that he was her servant till death, and, and a thousand if he had them. And so, as thy arms, O... Water! barked the voice. Again came the rush as of cataracts and a sensation of drowning. There followed an instant's glow of life, and then the intolerable pain came back, and the heavy red-streaked darkness. He found himself, after some period, lying more easily. He could not move hand or foot. His body only appeared to live. From his shoulders to his thighs he was alive. The rest was nothing. But he opened his eyes and saw that his arms were laid by his side, and that he was no longer in the wooden trough. He wondered at his hands. He wondered even if they were his. They were of an unusual color and bigness, and there was something like a tight-fitting bracelet round each wrist. Then he perceived that he was shirtless and hoseless, and that the bracelets were not bracelets but rings of swollen flesh, but there was no longer any pain or even sensation in them, and he was aware that his mouth glowed as if he had drunk ardent spirits. He was considering all this slowly, like a child contemplating a new toy. Then there came something between him and the light. He saw a couple of faces eyeing him. Then the voice began again, at first confused and buzzing, then articulate, and he remembered. Now then, said the voice, you have had but a taste of it. A taste of it, a taste of it. The phrase repeated itself like the catch of a song. When he had regained his attention, the sentence had moved on. These questions, I will put them to you again from the beginning. You will give your answer to each, and if my lord is not satisfied, we must try again. My lord, thought the priest. He rolled his eyes round a little further. He dared not move his head. The sinews of his throat burned like red-hot steel cords at the thought of it, and he saw a little table floating somewhere in the dark, and a melancholy face with dreamy eyes was brightly illuminated. That was my lord Shrewsbury, he considered. In what month that you first became privy to the plot against her grace? Sense was coming back to him again now. He remembered what he had said just now. It was in August, he whispered. In August, I think, two years ago. Mr. Babington wrote to me of it. And you went to the Queen of the Scots, you say? Yes. And what did you there? I gave the message. What was that? That Mr. Babington was her servant always, that he regretted nothing, save that he had failed. He begged her to pray for his soul and for all that had been with him in the enterprise. It appeared to him that he was astonishingly voluble all at once. He reflected that he must be careful. And what did she say to that? She declared herself guiltless of the plot, that she knew nothing of it, and that... Now then, now then, you expect my lord to believe that? I do not know, but it was what was said. And you profess that you knew nothing of the plot till then? I knew nothing of it till then, whispered the priest steadily. But... A face suddenly blotted out more of the light. Yes? Anthony, I mean, Mr. Babington, had spoken to me a great while before in, in some village in, I forget where. It was when I was a lad. He asked whether I would join in some enterprise. He did not say what it was, but I thought it to be against the Queen of England, and I would not. He closed his eyes again. There had begun a slow heat of pain in ankles and wrists, not wholly unbearable, and a warmth began to spread in his body. A great shudder or two shook him. The voice said something he could not hear. Then a metal rim was pressed to his mouth, and a stream of something at once icy and fiery ran into his mouth and out at the corners. He swallowed once or twice, and his senses came back. 
You do not expect us to believe all that, came the voice. It is the truth for all that, murmured the priest. The next question came sudden as a shot fired. You were at Father Inge? Yes. In what house? I was in the inn, the, the new inn, I think it is. And you spoke with her grace again? No, I could not get at her, but... Well? I was in the court of the castle when her grace was executed. There was a murmur of voices. He thought that someone had moved over to the table where my lord sat, but he could not move his eyes again. The labor was too great. Who was with you in the inn, as your friend, I mean? A young man was with me. His name was Merton. He is in France, I think. And he knew you to be a priest? came the voice without an instant's hesitation. Why? Then he stopped short, just in time. Well? How should he think that? asked Robin. There was a laugh somewhere. Then the voice went on, almost good-humouredly. Mr. Robin, what is the use of this fencing? You were taken in a hiding hole with the very vestments at your feet. We know you to be a priest. We are not seeking to entrap you in that, for there is no need. But there are other matters altogether which we must have from you. You have been made priest beyond the seas and Rames. I swear to you that I was not, whispered Robin instantly and eagerly, thinking he saw a loophole. Well, then at Chalon or Douai, it matters not where. That is not our affair today. All that will be dealt with before my lords at the Assizes, but what we must have from you now is your answer to some other questions. Assuming me to be a priest? Mr. Albin, I will talk no more on that point. I tell you we know it, but we must have answers on other points. I will come back to Merton presently. These are the questions. I will read them through to you. Then we will deal with them one by one. There was the rustle of a paper. An extraordinary desire for sleep came down on the priest. It was only by twitching his head a little and causing himself acute shoots of pain in his neck that he could keep himself awake. He knew that he must not let his attention wander again. He remembered clearly now that Father Campion was dead and that Marjorie could not have been here just now. He must take great care not to become so much confused again. The first question, read the voice slowly, is whether you have said Mass in other places besides Padley and the manor at Booth's Edge. We know that you must have done so, but we must have the names of the places and of the parties present, so far as you can remember them. The second question is the names of all those other priests with whom you have spoken in England since you came from Rheims, and the names of all other students, not yet priests, or scarcely, whom you knew at Rheims and who are for England. The third question is the names of all those whom you know to be friends of Mr. John Fitzherbert, Mr. Bassett, and Mr. Fenton, not being priests, but papists. These three questions will do as a beginning. When you have answered these, there is a number more. Now, sir. The last two words were rapped out sharply. Robin opened his eyes. As to the first two questions, he whispered, these assume that I am a priest myself. Yet, yet that is what you have to prove against me. The third question concerns, concerns my loyalty to my friends, but I will tell you... Yes? The voice was sharp and eager. I will tell you the names of two friends of each of those gentlemen you have named. Penn suddenly scratched on paper. He could not see who held it. Yes? said the voice again. Well, sir, the names of two of the friends of Mr. Fitzherbert are Mr. Bassett and Mr. Fenton. The names... Bah! The word sounded like the explosion of a gun. You are playing with us. The names, murmured the priest slowly, of two of Mr. Fenton's friends are Mr. Fitzherbert and... A face upside down thrust itself suddenly almost into his. He could feel the hot breath on his forehead. See here, Mr. Albin, you are fooling us. Do you think this is a Christmas game? I tell you it is not yet three o'clock. There are three hours more yet. A smooth, sad voice interrupted. The reversed face vanished. You have threatened the prisoner, it said, but you have not yet told him the alternative. No, my lord. Yeah, yes, my lord. Listen, Mr. Albin. My lord here says that if you will answer these questions, he will use his influence on your behalf. 
Your life is forfeited, as you know very well. There is not a dog's chance for you. Yet if you will but answer these three questions and no more, no more, my lord, yes, these three questions and no more, my lord will use his influence for you. He can promise nothing, he says, but that. But my lord's influence, well, we need say no more on that point. If you refuse to answer, on the other hand, there are three hours more today, there is all tomorrow and the next day, and after that your case will be before my lord's at the assizes. You have had but a taste of what we can do, and then, sir, my lord does not wish to be harsh. There was a pause. Robin was counting up the hours. It was three o'clock now, then he had been on the rack with intervals since nine o'clock. That was six hours. There was but half that again for today. Then would come the night. He need not consider further than that. But he must guard his tongue. It might speak in spite. Well, Mr. Albin? He opened his eyes. Well, sir? Which is it to be? The priest smiled and closed his eyes again. If he could but fix his attention on the mere pain, he thought, and refuse utterly to consider the way of escape, he might be able to keep his unruly tongue in check. You will not, then? No. The appalling pain ran through him again like fiery snakes of iron, from wrist to shoulders, from ankles to thighs, as the hand seized him and lifted him. There was a moment or two of relief as he sank down once more into the trough of torture. He could feel that his feet were being handled, but it appeared as if nothing touched his flesh. He gave a great sighing moan as his arms were drawn back over his head, and the sweat poured again from all over his body. Then, as the cords tightened, As thy arms, O Christ, were extended, he whispered, 